John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus Himself did not baptize, but only His disciples, He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And He had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. It's in my, it, it is, in my opinion, a natural response of every man's heart to segregate based on sex, race, social status, or political view. The sinfulness of mankind has brought us to this natural instinct. We do it without even thinking about it. We divide ourselves along these lines every day. But this is not the heart of God. And we see it from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 12, listen to the words of God in verses 1 through 3 to Abram. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's man's instinct to segregate. It's God's desire to unite. And it's throughout the Bible. It's throughout the Scripture. We see the application of this promise by Paul in Galatians. When he says, For as many as of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ... There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all in Christ Jesus. Listen to this. This is Genesis 12 fulfilled. And if you are Christ's, then you are the children. You are the offspring of Abraham. Don't you know that was music to the ears of the Gentiles in Galatia? And it should be music to our ears. The joy of the fact that God's gospel was not just for the Jews, but it was for every nation. It was for every tongue. It was for every tribe. It was for every ethnic group. It was even more than that. It was for every clan. It was for every family on the face of the earth. That's the most joyous, the most relieving passage to a Gentile. And you're a Gentile if you're here today, probably. There may be some Jews here, I don't know. You're probably a Gentile. That should be the most inspiring passage to you. You are the offspring of Abraham if you're in Christ. So we see the desire of God to unite. What more beautiful words can be found in the whole Bible than the words of John in Revelation 5 verse 9 when he says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is heaven. Not segregation. Not division. Not the recognition of barriers. The destruction of barriers through the gospel, and the calling of all nations to Himself. This is heaven. We will worship at the feet of Christ for all of eternity with every nation and every tongue 
and every ethnic group and every family throughout all of eternity. This is the heart of God. This is His picture of the kingdom. We're so caught up in this physical kingdom that we are convinced is geographic in location and centered in Jerusalem. And we're fighting this great war in our minds about the physical. Can you not hear the heart of God through the words of John? You want the kingdom? It comes when every nation and every tribe, some from every nation and every tribe and every language, are gathered in Christ. And they are the offspring of Abraham. And John's description of heaven is, this is the kingdom. This is the kingdom. Rightly understood, the kingdom of God comes to a people when God is in right relationship with man and the environment that they live in is perfect, is sinless. That is the kingdom of God. That is the kingdom of God. It existed in the Garden of Eden. It existed, existed in Jesus Christ. And we look forward again in the coming kingdom. The completion of the gospel age. That's what we're looking for. That unification with God, His creatures, and His environment, and the environment He has created. It's heaven. This is the unity that the church should be seeking in our day. This same heart cry of God should be our heart cry. This is the great cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the cause of the gospel which seeks to unify men across boundaries of ethnicity, race, culture, language, sex, and social class. It's the cause of the gospel that every valley is lifted up and every mountain is brought low. And all of the crooked places are made straight so that every man in all of the world might see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's the call of the gospel. It's so difficult for us here at Grace Fellowship because we live, we live inside the boundaries and most of us have all of our lives of the United States of America. I take it as um, a personal sin of my own that the church is divided along race, along languages. And as I start this message, which will be convicting to me and to you, I want to ask you a simple question. Why? 2,007 years after His birth is Christ's church the most segregated institution in the United States of America. Why? And I would say, in reply to my question, because of my natural inclinations, because of the old man that lives inside of me that sees race and hears language, sees cultures. Mark 1, verses 14 through 15. Mark writes, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. you hear him? The kingdom of God. And what did John say the kingdom of God was? In heaven, rightly understood, it's all of the redeemed from all over the world worshiping together. And that's a part, I would say, of what Jesus came to do. And our text tells us that's what he came to do. He needed to go to Samaria. He had a mission. It was not mission impossible. It was mission intentional. The gospel will be preached in every nation. 
That was his joy. That was his call. It's not a joyful thing to us if he says the gospel is of the Jews. It's not a joyful thing. We would be lost and hopeless, but instead he said it's the gospel of God. And Jesus lived out the truth that the gospel is not for one race of people, not for one social class, not for one economic class. Jesus preached the gospel to all people without discrimination. And so I ask why the church today has not followed his lead. Why have I not followed it? John puts together a very skillful passage in John 2 through 4. It's a unit. It's one unit. I want you to see it from here on forward as one unit. It's one thought. He's expressing this theme of the unification in Christ of all people. And this is how he chooses to do it. He closes chapter 2, flip back a page, probably one page in your Bible, to the end of chapter 2, when it says, Jesus needed no man to explain to him what was in the heart of man because he knew every man. What is the opening phrase of John chapter 3, verse 1? There was a man. You see it? There was a man. His name was Nicodemus. Right? That's the way John 3 opens. John 2 closes with, he didn't need anybody to tell him about men. He knew every man. And John cleverly places Nicodemus' title, not first as just a Pharisee or ruler or Jew, but as a man. There was a man, Nicodemus, and he came to Christ. He's connecting this thought of God, Jesus Christ knew every man, and now here comes a man. Nicodemus came to him. And so we have the story of Jesus witnessing, telling the truth, the gospel to Nicodemus. And then we go into chapter 4, and we see the main figure is a Samaritan woman. Jesus not only went to Nicodemus, or Nicodemus not only came to Jesus, but now we have Jesus in Samaria. Last week we covered a little ground about the background here, right? Samaria were wor- Samaritans were worse to the Jews than the Gentiles. They hated the Gentiles. They despised as dogs a Samaritan, especially a woman. She, this lady that John writes about would have been the most hated of the disciples. They would have hated her more than anybody, more than a Gentile, more than just any woman. She's a Samaritan woman. She's not even a good dog. She's an adulterous dog. And John paints the picture of God's heart of unifying nations and people through His Son, Jesus Christ, by painting a picture of a Jewish ruler coming to Christ and Christ going to this dog of all dogs to preach the gospel. He's intentional with it. You know how I know that? He closes the unit in John chapter 4, verse 42. The response of the Samaritans tells us John's being very calculated in his writing. They said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know, what? That He is the Savior of the world. Not the Savior of the Gentiles. Not the Savior of the Samaritans. Not the Savior of the Jews. The Savior of the world. John intentionally tied this whole thing together to paint for us the picture that God's gospel is for all mankind. It's to be preached equally among all tribes and all nations. And so today we look at this mission intentional. The gospel to the entire word. Look at the passage with me. In verses 1 through 3, we, listen to this, this is what you need to take home from these first three verses. We can expect opposition to the preaching of the true gospel. We can expect that. We shouldn't be caught off guard by opposition when we preach the true gospel. Satan has zero fear for the good old boy gospel. Not afraid of it. Satan doesn't tremble at moral and ethical teaching. He applauds it. He hopes you stayed wrapped up in it. 
If you do, you'll be lost. Satan quakes and fears at the true gospel. And he quakes and fears if men and women rise up in the name of the, and the grace of Christ to preach this gospel to the whole world. He's afraid of that. And he will oppose it. He will not go quietly into the dark. Peter tells us he roves around as a lion, seeking whose faith he can devour. And I would venture to say that some of you in here have been devoured already. But don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. God will never turn you loose. And today is an opportunity for you to see the gospel, believe the gospel, and then go preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. The opposition of the Pharisees is clear to us in verses 1 and 2. It says, When they heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, they, when they heard this, Jesus left Judea. Why did He leave? Well, as we go through John, we're going to get into real close connection with every time a statement like this is made, the danger is near. They're going to try to kill Jesus over and over and over again. And, and they'll often lead into it with the Pharisees realized you know, the power of his teaching and then they begin to move at him. They try to stone him at one point. They try to push him off a cliff at another point. And Jesus knows they've heard of his fame. They know that the real gospel is being spread. And so he relocates. He leaves Judea. They opposed him. And Jesus wasn't troubled by this, nor was He shocked by it. Look in John 3, verses 31 through 36. The disciples were urging Him, saying, oh, excuse me, 31 through 36 in chapter 3. He who comes from above, John says, is above all. He who is of the earth, who belongs to the earth, and speaks in an earthly way. He who becomes comes from the heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this. What? God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Look at the conclusion. This is what the Pharisees feared. This is what they opposed. And this is what our world will oppose us for. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That's the gospel. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It's an exclusive gospel. It's a gospel that is centered in Jesus Christ, brought about by Jesus Christ, and completed by Jesus Christ. The world opposes that. They want you to believe you can come through a various and mean, other way, means and ways. You can't. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. End the story. There's no hope in anyone else. There's no hope in a religious system. There's no hope in good works. There's no hope in any other so-called religion. The Pharisees feared this gospel... And they began to oppose this gospel. And Jesus, I want you to see, left. What were the Jews? They were racist. Plainly said, you can see it throughout the gospels. Don't take up for them. Don't excuse them. They were racist. Prideful and racist. They had the scriptures and didn't believe them. If you look at the scripture, it's clear that the Jews expected salvation for themselves and judgment for the rest of the world. They believed that despite the repeated call of the gospel in the Old Testament that all of the nations would be gathered together. This is what the Pharisees had believed and taught others to believe. So when Jesus preaches the gospel of whoever believes, they oppose it. Same will happen in our day. As long as we stay in our little group trying to reach our people that are like us, Who cares? There's no danger of revival in that. There's no danger of a great world outbreak of the gospel in that. No danger. 
so no opposition. But let a few in this room decide the cause of the gospel is bigger than my clique. It's bigger than my family. It's bigger than my neighborhood. It's bigger than this city. It's bigger than this county. It's bigger than this state. It's bigger than this region. It's bigger than the United States. The call of the gospel is worldwide. Whenever a few of us begin to believe that and pray that and work towards that, all hell will be marshaled against us. Because that is the true gospel. We need not be shocked, caught off guard by it. The same spirit that opposed Christ through the Pharisees will oppose us if we stand and preach the true gospel. What did Jesus do? He abandoned Jerusalem. He abandoned Judea and He abandoned the temple. He abandoned it all. In these chapters, in chapter 2, He went to the temple and cleansed it and left it. He left it. He didn't stay there dilly-dallying and preaching to people who didn't want to hear the truth. He preached the truth and left. He went into the region of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. That's where he probably met Nicodemus. He preached the gospel there and left. And he went into Judea. And when he was rejected in Judea, he left. And he never spends any significant time in Judea again until he dies. He went through it a few times. He went to the temple another time to pay, uh, to pay respect and worship to his father. But he, uh, we don't see a center of ministry in Judea. It's in Cana of Galilee. That's where he centers his ministry. That's where he comes from. He left it. He abandoned it. The word for us there where it says in verse 3, he left Judea is the same word we find later in the story in verse 28 when it says, the woman left her water jar, she left it. The Greek word means to abandon. To utterly leave. That's what Jesus did. He utterly left Judea. He abandoned it. This was God's sovereign plan. Paul says in Romans 11, Verses 11 through 12, So I ask, Paul says, Did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness mean? The sovereign plan of God was to preach the gospel in Jerusalem, to preach the gospel in Judea. It was rejected and he left to preach the gospel to Samaritans, Gentiles, and Jews in the outside circles of Judaism. Not to the Pharisees anymore. The only message Jesus gave to the, Gentile, I mean, to the Jewish leaders was, Woe to you. <laughs> Not a lot of hope offered in those messages. Rebuke. Hard words. The hardest words of Christ in the Bible are towards these religious, racist Jews. And John 4, 3 should convince us that God's plan has always included every tribe and every nation. If it was for Jews only, if it was for one nation only, He would have stayed in Jerusalem. That was the mega. That was the mega city of the Jewish world. That was the center the epicenter of Jewish thought. If he just wanted to reach Jews, he would have stayed there. But he didn't stay. Why? They rejected him. And what glory is that for us? That's how we got the gospel. That's how we got the gospel. So, my second point in this message from this text is Grace Fellowship should join Jesus in intentional missions to the world. Jesus is calling this church to intentional missions. Verses 4 through 6 show us His intention. Verse 4, And He had to go through Samaria. The necessity of His mission is clear. He had to do it. He was compelled to do it. He was captured by God to do it. He was purposeful in His going to Samaria. I said at the outset of this message that the, that the thought expressed in John 
2 through 4 is one unit. I want to make that clear to you so that it can be without question now. I want to compare Nicodemus and this Samaritan woman. Listen to this. There's great differences in them. We can recognize those pretty easily. Number one, he's a man. Nicodemus is a man. Number two, she's a woman. We don't know her name. She's so insignificant to the world stage, we don't even know who she was. So we have a man and a woman. All right, that's one difference. Nationality is a difference. Nicodemus is a Jew. She is a Samaritan. There's a moral difference. Nicodemus is of the class of Pharisees, therefore he is the strictest law abider in his nation. Probably one of the most moral men. He was a ruler of the Pharisees, not just a Pharisee. He, he might, maybe he could repeat the words of Paul when he said, of the law, perfect. I've done it. He was a moral man. What was she? A five-time adulterer. Absolutely and utterly immoral. So we have these differences. Social class. The Bible says he's a ruler. Gives his name. She's common. Not even important enough to give a name. She's so ordinary. So common. Education. He was well advanced in education. Probably trained in several languages. Trained in the law. Very intelligent. We don't know how educated she was. But based on the education of their day and the system they had, she would have been uneducated. Because women receive training at home, not formal education like we would think of, but home training. She could have read, she could have read a, a book, probably. She could have done her chores. But she was not well educated. One was wealthy. The other common. One worship through religion, the other through superstition. So we have the differences. They're clear. But there's great similarities between both of them. These are the ones you need to catch. Both believe they are all right spiritually. Nicodemus didn't come to Jesus trying to figure out how to fix his spiritual problems. He came to question him. As an accuser almost. That's the way it comes across to me the more I've read it. Almost like, okay, you hillbilly from Nazareth. I'm a ruler of the Jews. Tell me. How are we going to enter the kingdom of God? Maybe he wasn't being disrespectful. Maybe he was trying to find out if he was the Christ. That was his way of investigating. If Jesus had said, we're going to crush the Romans... We're going to set up a rule, and the Jews and you are going to be one of my right-hand men. I bet you Nicodemus would amen that in a second. It spoke to his heart. It spoke to his racism, but that's not what Jesus did. The woman thought she was okay. She says to him, I worship in this mount where my fathers worshiped. You see, she doesn't have this in desire that she knows to become something different. She's a Samaritan. You're a Jew. She's kind of maintaining order. So they both thought they were all right, spiritually. Both are focused on sp physical things, not spiritual things. We shouldn't be surprised by this, Nicodemus. The answer he gives to Christ when he says, you must be born again, what is it? Can a man enter into his mother's womb a second time? Physical. He's not thinking spiritually, he's thinking physically. The Samaritan woman's the same way. Jesus says, give me a drink of water. They get into the conversation and he says, Lady, if you'd have known who speaks to you, you would have asked me for water and I would have gave you living water which springs up in you to eternal life so that you wouldn't have, be, have to be thirsty anymore. And what does she say? The well's deep and you don't have anything to draw water with. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself? Physical. No concept of spiritual things. But why are we shocked at that? 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, Paul gives us, the things of the Spirit are spiritually discerned, right? They can't be perceived physically. And they're both looking through physical lenses right now in this story. So that's a similar thing. They both sense the need for more. 
Although I don't think they understood they needed Jesus, I think they needed more. I think they knew they were needing more. So they came looking for more. Both of them did. But you know, it's interesting to me. Nicodemus came to Jesus. Now, you would expect Jesus to go after this good moral man. Wouldn't you want somebody like Nicodemus? Jesus doesn't play along with the pharisaical mindset. He sits and waits, and Nicodemus comes to him. And the mission intentional is what? I must go to Samaria. He didn't wait on the Samaritan to come to Jerusalem to find him. He went to find her. She went to a well looking for water. He went to a well looking to give water. That's the message of the gospel. Isn't that the fleshing out of what he says to her later? You must worship God in spirit and in truth. God is looking for people to worship Him in spirit and truth. Who was He looking for when He went to the well? The adulterous, sinful dog is who He was looking for. Not a Pharisee. Not a religious man. Not somebody like Him. He went to find somebody totally opposed to everything that He was. Total opposites. And yet through the gospel, they're united. Through the gospel, they're united. It's just interesting to me. He went to her. You may be here today, and you may feel yourself to be the worst of all sinners. Ladies, you may have had something taken from you, or you may have given something away you can't get back. And you're broken. And the world tells you you're worthless. And I tell you, Jesus came to the Samaritan woman to give her life. The glory of the gospel is not that God sat in heaven and waited for us to come to Him, but that He ran hard after us. If He had waited in Jerusalem, this woman would have never come. She would have never come. So He didn't wait. When will we purpose? When will we commit? And when will we put feet to, as a church, taking the gospel to all creatures. That's what Mark tells us. To take it to all creatures. To all ethnicities. To all nations. Or are we satisfied to only reach the ones who come to us? Will we go out after those of another class, of another race, of another language, of another morality set, of another political stripe? Or will we sit smugly as a Pharisee and say, they've got to come to us? Will we be like our Father in heaven? Or will we be like the Father of the earth? That's the question for us today. Let me make this truth real to us. I know that it may cause pain. It may heap conviction. It may make you angry. But I must do what God this week laid on my heart. I repent today for not reaching those who don't come to me. I repent for only stretching out my arms to rescue those who look like me, who talk like me, who come from my background, who live in my social class. I repent of my racist pride that prevents me from seeing all men as equal and in need of the gospel. And I repent of my nationalistic pride and prejudice, which would say, let others go to hell as long as we have the gospel. I repent of it. I despise it. And I believe by doing this that I believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. William Wilberforce led the charge of a group of Christian men who were in the government of Great Britain. He filled his speeches with Scripture. He drew painful word pictures which made white Englanders horrored because of their immoral practice of selling humans for personal gain. 
And he argued tirelessly until February the 23rd, 1807, in the middle of the night. The Parliament of England passed the Slave Traders Act and outlawed the sale of a human based on color or nationality. Grown men danced in the snow that night. And they said, what will we conquer next? What will we go after now? They had a zeal for the gospel of Jesus Christ to all men. And they practically lived it. Abraham Lincoln, on September the 22nd, 1862, made a similar step in that direction. When he declared freedom for the the black race, he declared that slavery was illegal and immoral. And based on his declaration, January the 1st, 1863, freed every slave in the United States of America. And then he fought a bloody and long war to make it right. And I believe that this nation, for maybe the first time in its life, saw the fleshing out of Amos chapter 5. Let justice roll down. Let justice roll down. That was the call of the armies that marched and ended slavery in our nation. Unity of the nation was threatened, and yet Abraham Lincoln said, this is a cause worth dying for, fighting for, and if so, it will end this nation. But we must prevail. Freedom must prevail. And at the end of that war in April of 1865, men were legally free. But they were not equal. painful truth is that the evil of human hearts when it's involved it gives up very slowly Jews always naturally look down on Samaritans in their flesh they always do and it seemed that white men would always look down on those of a different color and a different ethnicity The outward expression of hatred and oppression was suppressed, but the inward motivation of the heart still existed. For 100 more years, this nation legally segregated along racial lines. From 1865 to 1965, the Jim Crow laws ruled the land. And we said they may be free, but they are not equal. And I tell you, That is an abomination to the gospel. That is spitting in the face of an almighty God. And thanks be to God that His grace prevailed. Thanks be to God that He put in our Scriptures that Christ had to go to Samaria. And others picked up that call of the gospel. And they began to unite beyond barriers for the sake of the gospel. William Wilberforce, Abraham Lincoln, and Martin Luther King Jr. stood for a righteous cause. He delivered the decisive blow to the Jim Crow segregation with a passionate speech from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial on August the 28th, 1963. He entitled that speech, I Have a Dream. I don't know if you've ever listened to the words. I would venture to guess because we're mostly white, most of us that didn't live in that time refused to listen to it. Because in our humanity still lies the seed of a hatred for those not like us and a refusal to take the gospel to all men of every nation and every ethnicity. And I've confessed mine before you and I call you to confess yours before God. Wilberforce, Lincoln, and King stood for the same cause. They served the same Christ. John Piper convicted me on this this, just this week on a message in Matthew 7 when he said, we misapply that whole passage. That's a whole other message, but it convicted me. I'd already listened to the speech. I'd already planned to put it in my sermon, and then there it was. So I added William Wilberforce. 
because it's a fitting ad. We should honor them. We should honor Christ by picking up the cause of the gospel and taking it to the ends of the earth. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair, I say to you today, my friends. And so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It's a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama, with its vicious racist, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, one day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted and every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. You hear His hope? Don't miss His point. His hope was not the unification of this nation. His hope was that all flesh shall see Him together and worship Him at that throne that's shown to us in Revelation 5. This is our hope, and this is the faith that I go back to the south with. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, and to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. And this will be the day. This will be the day when all of God's children will be able to sing with new meaning, My country tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. And if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. And so, let freedom ring from the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire. Let freedom ring from the mighty mountains of New York. Let freedom ring from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of California. Let freedom ring from the curvaceous slopes of California. But not only that, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hilltop and molehill in Mississippi. For every mountainside, let freedom ring. And when it happens, when we all allow freedom to ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up the day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last. Thank God we are free at last. And so I close the message with the cry of Wilberforce, Lincoln and King. And I combine them in John 4, 4, where Jesus said, I must go to Samaria. And I can honestly say that I have a dream today. It's a dream of the gospel going to all nations. 
to all languages, to all social classes, to all economic classes, all political stripes in the world. I have repented of my racist heart. I will continue to repent of my racist and prideful heart. And I will call on you to do the same. But I challenge you to do more than that today. Will you join me in becoming blind to the visions of the world? Will you join me in uniting with any man who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ? I have a dream. I look for the day when the gospel shall ring forth from every valley. I look for the time when the gospel shall shine forth on every continent. And this dream is not filled with idealism, but rather is filled with the power of Jesus Christ. Go and make disciples of every ethnos, which means nation, family, creed, language, ethnicity, and economic class. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Grace Fellowship, will you join me in this intentional mission to reach whoever will believe in the name of Jesus Christ? Will you dream this gospel dream with me so that we may grasp hold of the day when black and white, yellow and red, join under the cross of Christ in perfect harmony? Go with me to Judea. Go with me to Samaria and go with me to the end of the earth. And on the day that we stand in the presence of our Lord, we will be able to join the course of the nations. And we will be able to say, Worthy is the Lamb. By the grace of God and by the grace of Jesus Christ, grace fellowship can one day be made up of people from every tribe and every nation and every language on the face of the earth. But that will only happen if we join Christ in saying, I have to go to Samaria. I have to go to Samaria. I have to go to Somalia. I have to go to India. I have to go to Iran, Iraq, Israel, Russia, Albania, Canada, and Papua New Guinea. Because the gospel is for all who believe and not just for those who look, talk, and act like me. I have a dream and it is the dream of the gospel in every nation for the glory of God. And I'm asking you to dream with me and be intentional about dreaming the gospel dream that the world would be brought under unity in the cross. Will you dream that dream? Will you dare Offend your Pharisees that live with you and around you. And will you take the gospel to the ends of the earth? We've been commissioned. Let's go forward. Let's dream big dreams. And let's celebrate the unity we find only in Christ. Let's pray. Father, it would be short of me to say, And my life has been changed. I have for many years as a young man spent my life around people like me. If you would have the pleasure, Lord, I would ask that you would let me spend the end of my years with those not like me. Maybe they're not like me because they live in another part of this county. Maybe they're not like me because they don't talk like me. Maybe they're not like me because they're not the same color I am. But may I spend my days with them. And may this church spend its days working under the grace, your grace, that is supplied through the cross to go in this mission. And it's not popular. Lord, as I've spoken, the flesh has warred in this congregation. The excuses have been many. I know them because I've used them. It's just the way it was. It's just the way it is. Father, forgive us. 
for seeing Jews and not seeing Samaritans. Never, ever, Lord, let us see the world again the same way. Lord, our hope is not the government. We've tried that since 1965, and it's failed miserably. Though we drink in the same water fountains, use the same bathrooms, eat in the same restaurants, we are segregated people. And we hate one another in our hearts, though we've become civilized to the point that we would never say it out loud for fear of political or social reasons. That's not repentance, God. I've seen that this week. That's not repentance. That's sorry. That's, that's the kind of sorrow Judas had. Not the kind of sorrow that led to repentance in Peter's life. Give us the repentance that leads, the sorrow that leads to repentance. Help us not to wallow in the sins of the past, but let us never forget. Let us never forget that the heart attitude dies hard in the flesh. And it will only die by the grace of God. You will be the only one that delivers us from this sin of unbelief. It's unbelief. We don't believe the gospel. Forgive us. If we did, <coughs> this wouldn't be an issue. Take our excuses. Take our defenses. Humble us. Break us. Crush us. Until we rise up in your grace to say, my only dream is that the gospel reaches the end of the earth in my lifetime. That the kingdom of God might come to the earth and be consummated fully in you. Lord, make that the heart of this church. Make that the heart of each person in this church. And make us live it by your grace. It's in your name we pray. Amen.